So if you would open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Thus says the word of the Lord, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, again, we ask that you would be gracious to us. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, cleanse our hearts from any sin, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, clean before you be because of the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you for this place we have to worship you in freedom. Lord, bless your word, we pray, for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Most people know that the Olympic Games are always kicked off by a torch lighting ceremony in the host city in which the Olympics are held in that year. But people don't always know that several months prior to the Olympic Games, the Olympic torch is first lit in Olympia, Greece, to commemorate ancient Greek rituals that began in the 8th century before Christ. Actually, at the heart of the ancient Greek Olympics was not the games themselves, but a pagan religious festival held in a religious sanctuary, primarily to the honor of Zeus, the sky and thunder god, who is considered ruler and king of all the gods. And the fire that lit the first Olympic torch was believed to have divine origin. Some accounts say that the Greek titan Prometheus stole fire from the gods and brought it to a sacred altar at Hera, which is the name of Zeus's wife, where it was kept burning during the original Olympic Games in Greece. But apparently the torch didn't remain lit. So year after year at each Olympic event, a ceremony was held to call down fire from Apollo, the god of light. The modern ceremony we have today still takes place in the temple of Hera, where 11 uh, actresses are hired <laughs> to be the uh, high priestess and the 11 priestesses who are called the Vestral Virgins who call upon Apollo to relight that torch in front of the temple. And they use a parabolic, that is a curved mirror, and they position it in such a way that the rays of the sun are focused to a single point of light and they use old strips of camera film, which ignite with the high focused intensity of that light. And so the flame that emerges is believed to be the purest flame because it proceeds from the heavens. Following the torch lighting ceremony is a torch relay. And that was introduced much later, actually in the 1930s, when the Olympic torch would be brought from Olympia to the host city, often over the course of several months, and over several thousand miles involving hundreds and even thousands of torch bearers. And they would pass the torch from one person to the next to the next until the torch finally arrived at the host city and a cauldron would be lit to mark the start of the Olympic Games. What's interesting about the relay is that great care is taken to ensure that the purest flame 
of the gods stays lit all the time. In the early days of the relay, highly combustible magnesium was used as the fuel, along with two fuses so that there was a backup in case one went out. Today, the torch uses propane gas and is able to withstand winds up to 36 miles an hour, I read. But the torch has failed, and for various reasons over the years. So backups are always kept nearby to ensure that the torch remains lit as it makes its way to the host city. So you might be wondering how a story like this relates to our text this morning. <clears throat> well, outside of the official Olympics, there is another event happening today that is far more significant than the Olympics can ever be. And that's called the gospel of God or God's good news, his glad tidings, which is all about God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully man and fully God and is himself the light of the world. In fact, every person, person born into this world has a measure of his light. It's like a pilot light inside of every man, inside of every person, which God has put there that we, every one of us, would know that God exists just by looking at creation. It's evidence to us. And to know right from wrong, inherently. Nobody has to tell us what's right and what's wrong. We all know because God puts that light of conscience inside of us. But man in sin rejects that light and suppresses it, as we'll see as we go through Romans 1 here. But God, in his infinite goodness, sees fit to shine the full light of God, which is called the glory of God, or the glory of Christ, upon all who hear this gospel and believe it. In this sense, Christ is the fuel that ignites and brings life to his servants by saving them and then by enabling them to engage in the race of faith where we go, where we preach the gospel as torches that shine the light of Christ and by God's grace to light as many other torches along the way as possible so that they too can join the race and go and preach the gospel and light more torches. All the way, the march of history continues until we all reach the finish line. And friends, when Christ is the fuel, there is no chance that flame will ever extinguish. He is the purest flame that will never fail. And he will ensure that all his runners make it to the finish line with a burning torch. And as for the reward, well, not a victory wreath of olive leaves or a gold medal that perishes, but eternal life, eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. By way of a quick recap, as we've been going through this introduction, the first seven verses of Romans, um, we've seen that Paul, who prior to his conversion was commissioned by the high priest to go and arrest Christians and to halt the spread of Christianity, which is called the way, was himself arrested by God on the road to Damascus and was commissioned by the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, to join the way and to go herald his message called the good news. And Paul tells us that this race of faith has been going on for a long time. He said it was promised through the, through the prophets. God's prophets and the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament, and that the message always points to Christ, who is Savior and Messiah and God, the Sovereign One. He is the eternal Son of God who was born, we're told, with a human nature according to the flesh, that he might fully represent sinful man as our substitute, but without sin himself, because he was Conceived of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary without the input of her betrothed husband, Joseph. And when Paul says that God proved Jesus to be his son, declared him to be the son, which means proved, by raising him from the dead, never to die again. True resurrection, showing that Jesus is fully divine by his own spirit and by the spirit of holiness, the witness of God himself who raised him from the dead. 
The act of resurrection we talked about last week is what proves definitively that Jesus is who he said he was and that God has fully accepted his sacrifice. Sin has been paid for. It is finished, paid in full. Now we come to verses 5 through 7 this morning where Paul tells us about the fuel that propels this gospel forward. And Paul's word for that fuel is this, grace, grace. And this morning, I'd like to look at several aspects of this grace, which Paul lays out for us. The source of grace, the nature of grace, the power of grace, the extent of grace or the scope of grace, and the purpose of grace. So first, let's look at the source of grace. Through him, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Notice, through him. That refers back to the Son of God, uh, both in verses 4 and 5, or excuse me, in 3 and 4, the Son of God. So through him we have received grace, through Jesus, the Son. Now stop there. What is grace? We use that word a lot. It's important we know what it means. The Greek word for grace is charis, charis, which means favor. It means loving kindness. It means goodwill. In fact, it's the same root word that Paul uses when he describes the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 12. The charisma, you can hear how the word is in there, which is where we get the English word charismatic. And it just means the gifts, the gifts of grace, the good favor of the Holy Spirit, which we don't earn. They're given freely. And God often speaks of his grace in the Old Testament together as a bundle with his mercy and his patience. Listen to Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. His mercy, his glory, his grace, and his long-suffering or his patience all together. But scripture places emphasis on God's grace in this way. It is his unearned favor to those who deserve only punishment. Let me say that again. It's his unearned favor, his goodness, to those who deserve his punishment. God is never obligated to give his favor. No one can demand God's grace. Why? Because we're sinners. And we only deserve his justice, his punishment for sin. When he chooses to dispense his grace, he chooses to do so freely of his own will. God said it this way to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, which my brother Roy read this morning in the call to worship. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's God. It's the same argument that Paul will make later in the ninth chapter of Romans about the potter and the clay. Does the, play, does the clay have any right to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Doesn't the potter have authority over the clay to make of it whatever he wants? Of course he does. But he chooses to be gracious to his people. It's wonderful. In Psalm 119, verse 132, the psalmist says, Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Or as the NASB translates it, Turn to me and be gracious to me as your custom is. As your custom is with those who love your name. What is he saying? God is regularly gracious toward his people. Regularly. His practice is to show his undeserved favor to those who love his name. Notice in that verse, 132, he says, turn to me. Turn to me. The grace of God is to turn his face towards sinners. That's very important. Also in the call to worship this morning, Moses pleaded with God. He said, now, therefore, I pray if I have found grace in your sight, Show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may have grace in your sight, 
and continue and consider that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. <laughs> Beloved, God shows his grace to us by turning his face to us, by allowing his presence to be with us. That we should know him, that we should be guided by him and to have rest for our souls. That is true grace. The scriptures tell us that Noah and Abraham and Moses all found grace in the eyes of the Lord. They found grace. In other words, they, didn't, they, they found themselves under the favor of God. They, they didn't earn it. They weren't even looking for it. They received it. And Peter, in his first epistle, calls God the God of all grace. Meaning that all grace originates in God and that there is no grace apart from God. So grace is one of God's attributes, which he puts on display to show favor to only those who deserve punishment. We can never claim his grace. We can only receive it freely as a gift. So what's the connection between God's grace and the grace of Jesus that Paul speaks of here in verse 5? I think Paul answers that really well in the third chapter of Romans. If you would turn there, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is telling us that God's grace operates through Jesus Christ. It's linked to him. We are sinners, and so if we are to be justified, God must take the initiative, right? If we are to be put in right standing with God, declared righteous, blameless, that's what it means to be justified. He must show us his grace. And notice that it comes specifically through Jesus and his redemption. That means Jesus' payment of the price for sin in order to set the prisoner free, the price of his own blood, the precious blood of Christ. So that's why Paul can say that Christ is his source of grace, because God channels his grace exclusively through his Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son. Listen to how the Apostle John says it. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace. Christ is full of the favor of God toward undeserving sinners. In fact, Paul tells us this very interesting uh, aspect to Titus when he writes to Titus. He says this, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God has appeared to all men. He's not just talking about God's attribute of grace, but he's talking about the manifestation of God's grace in the person of Jesus. That Jesus himself is the expression of God's grace, his undeserved favor to man, to pardon sin, to give us his righteousness, which is required if we are to be in the presence of God without being consumed. Christ is the fount. He is the source of God's grace. So how does it come to us? Well, a couple of verses later in John 1, verse 16. And of his fullness have we all received. And grace for grace. We receive. Again, grace is received. It's not earned or we can't put a claim on it. And that phrase, and grace for grace, it's a wonderful phrase. It means grace in the place of grace or grace because of grace. The idea is wave upon wave of rolling grace will come upon you in Christ Jesus. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of its own, it must be connected to the vine. So we must be connected to Christ. And when we are, his grace, his life flows through us continuously. So our first point is that Jesus is the source of all grace. Then Paul moves to the nature of grace, the nature of grace. Through him, 
we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And there are, I believe, two types of grace in view here. Saving grace and sending grace. First, saving grace. This grace Paul speaks of for him was saving grace. It's linked to his calling in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated to or separated unto the gospel of God. So it's linked to his calling. It's linked to his sanctification. Previously, when we talked about Paul's conversion um, on on the Damascus Road, you remember he was on his way to persecute Christians and to drag them back to Jerusalem to imprison them because he had papers, he had orders from the high priest that he could do so. And Christ, the risen Christ, appears to him on the road to Damascus at noonday when the sun was hot and blazing. And the the glory of Christ excelled, exceeded the brightness of the noonday sun such that it blinded Paul and knocked him off his horse. And you remember what happened. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, without even knowing it, Saul hated Christ because he hated Christ's people. But when he encountered the risen Lord, he was halted. His direction was stopped and he was forever changed. We're told in the scriptures that after he had received his sight, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So Paul had a call And it was what we would say effectual. It was effectual. It went to his heart and it changed his heart from hating Christ and Christ's people to loving Christ and loving Christ's people. There is another call, brethren, that goes out in Scripture, and it's what we would call the general call. Take, for example, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison... Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the general call. It goes out to all indiscriminately. Repent and believe the gospel. But that general call can only come to your ears. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, It will never go to your heart. It only comes to the ear. That may be you this morning. You may have heard the gospel a thousand times, but the message has never sunk down into your heart. That would be the effectual call. When the Holy Spirit of God takes the word from your ears all the way to your heart, and he makes you new from within, he gives you a new heart. We have a, as many of you know, we have a person in our congregation who has been asking for prayer for her elderly father for years. He's heard the gospel many times over the course of his life, undoubtedly, certainly from his daughter and no doubt from many others. And we've prayed for him as a body. This past week, this dear sister updated us that her father's health has been failing and that he likely doesn't have a lot of time left on this earth. Uh, But that a nephew and the nephew's friend, who is a pastor, were planning to make a visit to the convalescent home to visit him. And during the visit, the visitors gave this man the gospel again. And uh, they used a whiteboard to illustrate the gospel because he was hard of hearing. And miraculously, he responded with a confession of his own sin and that he trusted in Christ as his Lord and Savior. Beloved, every true Christian is effectually called, which means that we have received saving grace. Saving grace. And how do you know that you've received saving grace? Well, one of the evidences is that you have sending grace. Sending grace. We have received grace and apostleship, Paul says, for obedience to the faith. Notice the connection between saving grace and sending grace. We're saved in order that we might be sent. That's what apostle means, right? It means sent one. 
There's no such thing as a Christian who is genuinely saved, who has no heart to go and spread the gospel of Christ. Paul says that his purpose in receiving God's grace was that he might minister to the Gentiles. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. It wasn't just for himself. So God's purpose in pouring out his grace is not just to secure a spot in heaven for you and for me, but that we would join the race of faith and go as torchbearers, lighting others who are in a dark and dying world in order that they too might join this race of faith and be saved. One torch lighting another as we all keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? Who ran the race of faith before us, faithfully to the end, and who now bids us to come and to follow in his steps. So Paul starts this letter with himself in the singular. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And then he moves in verse 5 to we. Through him we have received grace and apostleship. And then in verse 6, notice he transitions from we have received to among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So what is he doing? He's moving out concentrically from a smaller circle in the middle, I himself, to we the apostles, to you also, you Romans. And if I would say, you Creeksiders. What's the implication that Paul's making here? He's saying, just as I was called and commissioned to go, so you Romans are also called. You also are recipients of grace. And that means that you what? You also go and herald the gospel. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that we're all apostles in the sense of the office, the apostolic office. We talked about that in the the first message in this series. We're not apostles in that sense. Uh, That office was unique for the early church. And it was used to authenticate the spoken word of the apostles. Because scripture had not been fully written down yet. So for Christ to authenticate his messengers as genuine, as the real deal, he gave them wondrous signs, gifts, um, powers, miraculous powers that that are no longer in place today. Um, The apostles, you could think of it this way, were the New Testament counterparts to the Old Testament prophets, right? The Old Testament prophets wrote scripture, pointing to Christ. The New Testament apostles explain that Christ has come, and they look back to him. So the canon of scripture is closed. Now, we don't need an apostolic office anymore. But interestingly, the word that Paul uses here in verse 5 is apostleship. The word actually means ascending away, and it's it was used of maritime vessels, of ships. So the idea is a fleet of ships is being dispatched with apostleship. And you see that scripture uh, uses the word in the same sense, meaning messenger on a few occasions. Like take, for example, 2 Corinthians 8.23. Paul says, uh, or Paul refers to those who accompanied the offering that he was taking to Jerusalem as messengers, apostoli, apostles of the churches. Or in Philippians 2.25, Paul calls Epaphroditus your messenger, apostolos, and minister to my need. Now, Epaphroditus wasn't an official apostle, uh, but he was a messenger. And in that sense, we are all messengers for Christ. We are all being dispatched as ships. So Paul is saying that in Christ, we all have saving grace in order that we might have sending grace to go to all the nations, that they too might be saved. So Paul starts with Christ as the source of grace, the fuel that called him into the ministry. Then he describes the nature of grace, both uh, he and we, excuse me, that both he and we receive as saving grace and sending grace. And then he moves now to the power of grace, 
the power of grace. This is our third point. For obedience to the faith among all nations. Some other translations say for the obedience of faith or unto obedience of faith. In other words, the reason Paul and we have saving grace is to go to the nations who don't know Christ and to give them the gospel that they too might come to faith in Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He, he uses the word obedience. It's a message that is to be obeyed. In other words, it's a message that makes a demand upon the hearer. Repent and believe the gospel. That's a command. Repent and believe the gospel. When both John the Baptist and Jesus began their preaching ministries, you know the first thing that they both said? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. In other words, turn. Not just from doing bad things. Turn from yourself, from who you are, from your pride and self-sufficiency, and turn to Christ. Come to him. Come to him as a little child who has no resources of his own. Be 100% dependent on God as a little child is upon his parents. You do that with God for grace. So the faith is not a suggestion. Jesus didn't say, uh, well, now, have you considered my teachings? I am uh, one way and one truth and one way to life. No, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's definitive. Jude, when he writes in his epistle in verse 3, he says, well, leading up to verse 3, that he's writing to those who are called, the called, exhorting them to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once delivered for all to the saints. There is one faith, loved ones. It's the same faith as we have in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Old Testament saints were called to obey by looking forward to the coming of God's Messiah. New Testament saints were called to obey looking back to who the, the Messiah was revealed to be in Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's the faith. It's the whole word of God. And everything that God has revealed, we are to embrace and submit to and obey. So the object of the message has always been the same. Right? Sometimes people get confused on this. Only the illumination of the message has changed. It was more dim in the Old Testament. Now, the dimmers are all the way up and we see brightly because God has revealed his truth in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The reason Paul puts emphasis on obedience here is because this matter of faith is a matter of life and death, dear ones. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you ultimately reject this name when you breathe your last, you will be damned. There's no hope for you. And you know what is not popular in today's culture at all to make demands on people? We make suggestions, don't we? We make comments and helpful tips so that we can get our point across without causing offense. Well, the gospel is an offense. It's a stumbling block that the natural man thinks is absolute foolishness. That is, until the saving grace of God comes upon him, and then he embraces it and he loves it. It's dear to him. Paul will later say in the 10th chapter of this epistle in Romans, verses 15 and 16, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? You see, when the natural man hears the message of faith, he rejects it. He's disobedient to the faith. He's unbelieving. That's what it means. 
The truth of the gospel goes out as a bright shining light in the darkness and it demands belief. It's just another way of saying obedience. Those who believe the message are those who obey the message. Listen to how one commentator explains this concept of the obedience of faith. The act of faith, quote, the act of faith is the obedience of the understanding to God revealing. And the product of that is the obedience of the will to God commanding. I'm going to read that one more time. The act of faith is the obedience of the understanding to God revealing. And the product of that is the obedience of the will to God commanding, end quote. In other words, when we hear the word of God, where do we first accept it? In our minds. It makes sense to us. We don't fight it. But the acceptance doesn't stop there. It's not merely a mental assent. The next step is that we want to obey the word of God, right? Our will changes. It's our desire. And we don't do that perfectly. There's no perfectionism in this life. But it's a pattern. It becomes a pattern of our lives. And it's the mark of every true Christian. That we desire to do the will of God. And he empowers us to do it by his spirit. It's not a theoretical exercise of the mind when we obey the gospel. It translates into a life of obedience. That's the point. Uh, For you children, when your parents give you instructions and you tell them with your mouth that you are going to do what they ask you to do, but really you don't want to obey them in your hearts, is that obedience? It's not. It's disobedience. And you know what? Adults do the same thing. Think of it this way. What's the difference between tasting a bite of food and swallowing it? All the difference in the world, right? Jesus said in John 6 that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not literally, but spiritually. We must not just taste the bread of God. We must eat it and eat it regularly such that it nourishes us and it changes our constitution. It becomes part of who we are. That's true faith and obedience. And it's not something that natural man can do, right? I mean, that's why I titled this section, It Takes Power. This is the power of grace to bring about this obedience to the faith. Scripture says that the heart of sinful man is hard, like a stone, like a rock. That's why God says in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? It takes the power of God to shatter the hard heart of a man and to break him of his self-reliance and his love for his own sin. Scripture also says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It takes the power of God who broke through the darkness of creation and said, let there be light to break through the darkness of the human heart, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that sinful men are like those who are kept under guard by the strong man fully armed, which is a euphemism, a picture of the devil keeping his subjects under his control. And it takes the power of God as the stronger man who is able to overcome the strong man armed and to dispossess him of his prisoner. Do you remember our catechism question from last week? Question. Did our first parents continue in the glad obedience for which they were created? Answer. No. But desiring to be like God, our first parents forsook the obedience of faith. Ate of the forbidden tree, sinned against God, and fell from the innocence in which they were created. We all, as sons of Adam, naturally forsake the obedience of faith. When we're presented with the truth of God and called to believe, commanded to believe, we always reject it in favor of the lie of the devil until the grace of God comes upon us. And that word goes from our heart, our ears, excuse me, to our heart, and we believe, we embrace it by faith. So here is the gospel, the good news about God's son who is going to put everything right that sin put wrong. He is the promised one who has come. He is the God-man. 
sinless, to stand in the place of ruined sinners, like we sang in our Hallelujah, What a Savior song. Let's make this really simple. We're talking about belief and believing God. Do you, do you believe God? If not, your stubborn heart must be overcome. The hard heart must be broken with the hammer of God. But if you do believe God and his word, you can be sure that the saving grace of God has come to you. That you would be willing to accept the truth of God and seek to obey it in your will, your desire. This is God's gospel, loved ones. Let us not be ashamed of it. It's his message, right? He's the one who is calling sinners to repentance and to faith in Christ through us. We're just the conduits. We're just the messengers. So we have the source of grace, the nature of grace, the power of grace, and now the extent or the scope of grace. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. So here's the question. Is the saving grace of God for the believing Jews only? Or does God have a larger purpose in his plan of redemption? Paul puts it like this in Romans 3, verses 29 and 30. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles or the nations? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. God's purpose from the beginning is that the nations of the world would be saved because he's merciful, he's gracious, he's magnanimous. And there is no nation that is inherently better than another. God has concluded everyone under sin. Why? That he might have mercy upon all that no one would be able to boast in his presence. It's God's grace that goes out to rescue his people from the four corners of the earth and to gather them into himself, the church, the called out ones from the world. You remember God's promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 17? God told Abraham, Abram that his covenant was with Abram and that God would make him a father of many nations. That's why he changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians 3, clarifies that all people who share the faith of Abraham, that is to say, who take God at his word, who believe God, that he is and that he is able to do what he says, are the sons, the true sons of Abraham. So Abraham is the father of many nations, both Jews and Gentiles. What's the qualifier? As many as believe God. Or think of Babel. What happened at that Tower of Babel? God had restated his creation ordinance for mankind to be fruitful and to multiply and to go out and to fill the earth. But the people, were told, were lifted up with pride. And rather than scatter as God had commanded, they decided to build a tower that reached to the heavens. Why? To make themselves a name. And God came down and saw what they had done, and he confused their language. That's why it's called Babel. Babel means confusion. And what did he do? He dispersed the people throughout the earth because they could no longer understand each other. Language now became a barrier that separated now, fast forward to Pentecost at Acts chapter 2. What happened there? Christ pours out his Holy Spirit on his people, and they begin to speak with languages, tongues, other than their own, and to speak the wonderful works of God. Why? He's removing, removing the language barrier that had previously been placed there, and he's now gathering, he's bringing the church together, and he's uniting all nations under the banner and headship of Jesus Christ. And then as my brother Stan read from Revelation chapter 5, we have the Apostle John's vision of the great throne room of heaven. And when Jesus, as the lamb who is slain, takes the scroll representing all of human history, 
We're told that the church and the angelic host of heaven all bow down before him and they worship him and they sing a new song, the song of redemption, which is this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The grace of God is not limited to national Israel. It never has been. We'll get to that in Romans chapters 9 and 10. It goes to all nations to join this race of faith. And so we see Paul bring that point home here for the Romans. In verse 6, where he says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You are one of those. You are some of those from all nations who God has gathered to himself. The grace of God reaches all nations. It goes to the Romans and it goes to us, Creeksiders, by God's grace. And brothers and sisters, we know that God's mission will not fail, cannot fail, because the flame of God's grace can never be extinguished. Why? Because the source is the eternal God himself, who has infinite resources, all grace. He is the one who ignites us, and he sends us to ignite others in this great race of faith. And then finally, the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace. What does Paul say? Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. For his name. What's the ultimate purpose of grace? Why does God give grace to his enemies and send them his son to die the death that they deserve to die? Why would God do that? The prophet Malachi Chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. We were reading this morning in our, our uh, Sunday school in Revelation chapter 5. And the bowls of incense that the elders and the four living creatures offer before the lamb who had been slain are the prayers of the saints. God's will is that his people would be brought out from every nation and that they would worship him in every place, that they would pray to him in every place, that they would worship in spirit and in truth. Loved ones, our Lord is doing something in this world which is far greater than any one of us can see or understand. He is gathering his sons and daughters, a multitude from the nations of the earth to worship God, to have communion with God, to live in the spirit as God does, to bask in his glory and fulfill the purpose for which man was created, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the purpose of grace and the purpose of our life as Christians, to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and me out of darkness that you would call on the name of the Lord in the day of trouble and that he would deliver you and that you would glorify him. Psalm 50, verse 15. That you would trust him and depend completely on him. That you would cry out to him as a tender father, Abba, Daddy, for both the Jew and the Gentile. Abba, for the Jew. Pater, Father, for the Gentile. There's no boasting when we come to God, is there, loved ones? Salvation is of the Lord. Scripture's clear. All of it. Our works of righteousness before God are trash, filthy rags. The only work that he accepts is the work of his son. His obedience, his righteousness, his faithfulness. 
And we receive all of that. We receive his obedience, his righteousness, his faithfulness. How? By grace. Through faith. The fuel that propels the gospel forward. To save us. To send us. To gather the elect from every nation under heaven. To be the one holy nation of God. The ancient Olympians who engaged in the games did so for their own glory. And for the glory of the gods, like Zeus. We who are engaged in the race of faith do so not for our own glory or for any false gods, but for the honor of him who loved us and who gave himself for us. So what have we seen so far? The source of all grace is Jesus Christ. The nature of grace is that it is saving and sending The power of grace is that it overcomes the darkness of man's heart and moves him into the kingdom of light where he embraces the Son willingly. The extent of grace is that it reaches every tribe, every tongue, every people and nation of the earth. And the purpose of God is for the glory and honor of God, for his name. Next week, Lord willing, we will conclude Paul's opening salutation to the Romans. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by your grace. That you would treat us with favor and kindness when we only deserve your wrath and hell an eternity of torment that will never be consumed. Father, by your grace, you have saved us. You have shown us that Jesus is the Son of God who has come in the flesh of the seed of David and he has declared, proven, the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Father, we know that no man can be convinced of these things apart from the work of your Holy Spirit who convinces us, who affirms for us that the word of God is in fact true. No man can do this of his own. And so, Lord, we pray, if there's any here this morning who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Father, come by your Spirit and do the work that only you can do. Lord, for those of us who do know you, Help us to run this race of faith with patience, with endurance. Lord, we we can get tired at times. But in our own strength, Lord, we have no power. We have no resources. You are our strength. You are our flame that keeps us going. And you will. Your promise is that you will keep us all the way to the end. You will hold us fast. We praise you, Lord, that we are safe in your arms. And we pray Help us, Lord, to um, pray for and do the work of the ministry that others, too, might be saved. This is not about us. It's about your glory. May you receive all the honor and the praise. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.